This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. If you are sort of new to the Bible and like to know the storyline of the Bible, this is a great chapter because it'll just tell you kind of uh, everything that happened from the day of creation until the day of Nehemiah. Uh, so let me pray, and then uh, we're going we're gonna to look at ch- chapter 9 here this morning. God, thank you for your grace to us and for what we're about to read, that you are faithful. And Lord, that's our hope right now. As we open this word, we're hoping that you would be faithful. We're trusting that you will be faithful. We, we know you will be faithful to speak to us, to change us, to turn our hopes away from the temporal things of this world where we root our hearts and, and where we try to stand and where we lean and where we trust. We pray that you would take all of those away and help us to trust in you alone today for you are faithful. And Lord, we trust as we open right now, you'll be faithful to us to speak, to give courage and hope and peace to each of us here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here's what we learned uh, last week in uh, he returned, great, in chapter, uh, in chapter 8. Uh, we, we learned in chapter 8 that uh, we saw a powerful work of renewal. What happened was the people in Jerusalem had been exiled about 150 years before. Their city had been destroyed, their, their walls broken down, their temple uh, destroyed, and they were taken into captivity at that point by the Babylonians. Um, and since that time, 150 years ago, a lot of progress has been made. Uh, the, the, uh, a good remnant, good-sized remnant of the people have returned. Uh, the temple has been rebuilt, and um, they've begun to worship again. And we just read that the walls of the city had just been completed under Nehemiah's leadership. So it's a fortified city, protected city, and now people could move into the city. So this has been this tremendous construction work, but it was all done for what happened in chapter 8, and that was to renew the people's heart by the scripture. And so the priest, Ezra, reads the scripture uh, to uh, to teach the people for five or six hours. No, nobody had a Bible like you and I do in those days, personal copies. So he reads the parts of the first five books of the Bible to them, and they are profoundly affected by God's Word. And so many of them begin to weep. They begin to be convicted because when they hear God's Word, which is unfamiliar to many of them perhaps, they realize they haven't obeyed God's Word. And, and uh, the leaders tell them, no, today is not a day to mourn, but a day to celebrate. They, they hear of God's faithfulness and they celebrate. They read about this one festival called the festival or feast of booths or tabernacles that they were uh, that God's people participated in annually they read about that and they actually do it so they have this seven day harvest festival uh, with a great joy and then at the end of that feast uh, they take a day off and then we come to chapter nine which is the 24th day of the month. So I'm going to read in sections and then talk about each section from chapter 9. So let's begin. Uh, I'll read verses 1 through 5. This is God's Word. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, for another quarter of 
uh, of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So they come back together after this festival of joy, and they are mourning in essence. There is a sobriety to this gathering. Why are they so sober? Well, uh, ultimately, this chapter is going to be a prayer that's going to end in confession. So they're very aware, not only of their own sins, but they're also in distress. Many good things have happened, but they're still in distress. I'm going to cheat a bit and go to the end of the chapter, and uh, let's read verses 36 and 37, because this is why they're sober. Verse 36 says, Behold, we are slaves this day, and in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So this is why they're praying with sobriety. And when they say they're enslaved, it's not like the slavery they experienced in Egypt, which we'll read about in a moment. It's not like the uh, chattel slavery uh, where people owned humans in our own country uh, at the founding of our country and then for some time. It's not that kind of slavery. Uh, It's rather probably the kind of slavery that is financial in nature. They had freedom. They could build their own house. They could grow their own crops. We've seen that. But they were likely heavily taxed such that they would say Persia owns us. You know, there is a, a, a significant royal tax of what we grow and what we have that we are responsible to give them. And the reason this is is because it's kind of a lingering judgment for their rebellion against God. So that though much has happened and the city has been rebuilt, built, the temple is built, they're ready to go. They're still now crying out to God, Lord, would you act on our behalf? So it's a point of suffering that they pray this prayer. Verses 6 through 38 is all a prayer. Verses 6 through 38 is all a prayer, which we're going to look at. And it doesn't read like a prayer. When you read it, it doesn't read like a prayer. It reads like a story. It is the story of God. It is the story of God's history with his people. And, but they are praying it to God. They're saying, God, you did this and you are this and you are. So they are talking to God about God. That's what the majority of the prayer is. And it runs through a story of what God has done for them. And it's a, as we walk through this, I want to say something that will hopefully be a lesson that will help you read your Bible, help us understand when we read stories in the Bible. There's a lot of talk about stories in the Bible and narrative and the meta-narrative, the overall overarching story of the Bible and of humanity and this sort of thing. Uh, so it's good to think about stories, but the truth is that the stories of the Bible are intended to reveal God to us. They're not morals. They're not good lessons. They are primarily to reveal the person and the work of God, to, to what he has done. And so as they are praying this prayer, it's a great example because they're saying, God, you did this. 
This is what it revealed about you, what we learned of you, and this is what we're counting on, your character. The stories of God are meant to reveal his person and his character. And so now they are remembering all that God has done for them. They're in great distress, so they're remembering all that God has done. Let's look at verse 6, verses 6 through 8. This is the whole book of Genesis summarized in three verses as he starts through the Bible. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring. The land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Notice that the prayer starts, and it will continue through the very end, focusing on God. It starts with God. You're the one who created everything. The prayer focuses on God. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes in my personal prayers... The prayer focuses on me and my needs and my burdens and my thoughts and and what I want and what I sense I need and these sorts of things. And we are to bring our burdens to God. We are to bring our needs to God. The scripture calls us to do that. However, oftentimes our prayers are so much concerned with us that we walk away from it and we wonder, well, I wonder why I didn't really sense the Lord or I don't sense any kind of a different perspective. The prayer that we're going to read today is very focused on rehearsing what God has done. And that is a major point of prayer. We're to come in to see God. We're not praying to pull God to our side. We're getting pulled to his side. Even when Jesus teaches how to pray, he says, you pray our father. So we start with our nature, the nature of our relationship with God. He's a loving father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Lord, the heart of our prayer is to, to glorify you is what that means. Your kingdom come. Lord, our starting place for prayer is not fix my world, but Lord, have your way. And this is very much how they're praying, a God-centered prayer. I heard someone share one time that oftentimes prayer is like this. If you think about it a little, if you're in a little boat, a small boat that's tied off to a dock, and uh, it's got a, obviously tied to a rope, but if you pull that rope, the dock doesn't come to your boat. You rather, your little boat gets pulled to the dock. And that is really what prayer is. It is, it is encountering God, but we are the ones that get pulled to him. We're not pulling him to us. And that happens when we rehearse what God has done and who he is. And that's what they do here. So it starts out, Lord, you alone have made the heaven and the heaven of heavens. There's a great lesson here. We, we read this just a minute ago. We are in great distress, verses 36 through 30, 37. So let's start with the power of God. Is God powerful? I don't see him as powerful right now in my circumstance, perhaps. But God is the one who spoke and everything came into existence. God has such power by the mere speaking of his words, he can create a universe out of nothing. You are the great God. Then it moves to the story of Abram in verse 7. You chose Abram. So it, it is the story of God making a covenant with the man whose name has changed to Abraham. Covenant means it is God is making a commitment. A, it's, it's more than even a legal commitment. It is a, it is a commitment to, 
to, uh, to Abraham and to those who will follow after him. And in Genesis 12, it says that he promised Abraham a land and he promised him descendants. Uh, that, that after him would come a great people, and that is the people of Israel, and that he would give them a land. And so notice, we are in distress, but you know what? You promised something to Abraham, and we're here. We are in the land that you have given us so many years later, and, and we are your people. What you promised has come to pass. That's why verse 8 says, and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. We're here in the city. This is evidence that you're a promise-keeping God. Verse 8, you have kept your promise. This is the theme of this entire prayer. And I want to argue this is the theme of the entire Bible, that God keeps his promises. And that's when they are in distress. They don't start with, you know, looking for relief. There's nothing wrong with crying out to God for help. But they start with, Lord, you are all powerful. That's where they start. You can do anything. Secondly, you've made a promise, God, and you keep your promises. Get the point. They're in distress, and they look at their history of a promise-keeping God. That's what the rest of the prayer is going to be. You did this. You did this. You did this. You have been faithful even when we have not. So the story is going to show as we go through here in the next few verses that God's people have not been faithful over the generations, but God always has. As a matter of fact, Abraham failed God at a number of places, even though God made a covenant with him. Abraham, Abraham's son significantly failed God. And that is the history of the people of God, that the people of God have failed, but God keeps his promises. And we need to be reminded of that truth, that no matter what you are experiencing today, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, your hope is that God will keep his promises, that he never gives up on you. God never gives up. He's faithful to you. If you doubt him, he is faithful. If you sin, when you sin, he is faithful to you. When you break the covenant, he keeps the covenant. When you choose idols, he is faithful. When you forget about him altogether, he is faithful. When you suffer, he is faithful. That is the story of the Bible. You have kept your promise. We're in distress. We have huge taxation. It feels like they own us. The Persians own us is what it feels like. But we're here, God. You've been faithful to us. God is faithful even when we are not. The next part of the prayer looks at the book of Exodus, verses 9 through 15, talk about what happened uh, to Abraham's uh, generations that followed him when God's people Israel were enslaved in Egypt. Verse 9, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. 
You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So really, there's a whole book for you in in, uh, the book of Exodus in um, summary form. He reminds them, you were actual slaves, worse than you are, much worse situation than you you have now in Jerusalem. You were slaves under Pharaoh, who was the most powerful person on the planet at that time. And God comes with signs and wonders, and uh, and he, uh, he, he shows Pharaoh how weak Pharaoh really is, and Pharaoh releases through these plagues, Pharaoh chooses to release God's people. He then changes his mind and they pursue God's people. God brings his people through the Red Sea. Amazing. It's the ultimate picture of deliverance in the Old Testament. He brings them through the Red Sea. The pursuers, Egyptians, come. He closes the water and destroys all those who uh, are opposed uh, and, and chasing after God's people. And then it says in verse 10, you made God, he's praying to God, you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. This is so key. He's saying, that day you made a name for yourself. You demonstrated your God who is faithful, God who is gracious, God who is all-powerful, a God who is merciful to his people, God who, who rules over all. But ultimately, you were the God who is faithful to your promise. You made a name for yourself, faithful God on that day, as it is today. So this prayer in Nehemiah is being prayed a thousand years after that event. But the people are looking at that event and they're saying, based on what you did then, we're confident in you now. That's how you read Bible stories. We're to read Bible stories and say, when I read that, it reveals to me something of God. And I'm going to hang on to that truth now. That's why Jesus said, if you build your life on a rock, if you build your life on the rock of his word, on the words of this book, then when troubles come, and they will, when the storms beat on your house, your house is built on a slab, a concrete foundation, a rock, something that does not move so you can withstand the storms. If you don't do that, if you build your life on your opinion and how you feel and what's the latest news and what do they say, if your life is built on how much money you have or how your health is going or what your relationships are like, if you're building your life on anything besides the word of God, what will happen is Jesus says, when the storms come, you will be like a house built on sand and be washed away because you have nothing to secure to stand on. That's why they are in distress, but they're looking back a thousand years at something that happened and said, you made a name for yourself then as it is today. You were faithful then. That's what we're hanging on to, God. We're hanging on today that you are faithful because of what you did. You'll do it again as we sang this morning. You know, I know that you'll do it again, we sang. That's their prayer. Verses 16, it begins to explain how God gave his law to them from Moses after they crossed the Red Sea and were free. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. 
and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Reviewing the history of God. We're just walking right through the Bible here. So once they, once they came out of the promised land, what happened? Well, God gave them the law through Moses. But did they obey? No. It says they stiffened their neck. They rebelled against God. They did not obey your commandments. Even after you did all those miracles against Pharaoh and freed them, they did not respond to you. They forgot the God that delivered them. But look at verse 17. Even then you were gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Verse 18 says, you were willing to forgive. You were leaning in with mercy and abundant love. Even when they made a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. God does all these miracles for them. What do they do? They say, we don't want your law. We're not going to obey your law. We're going to make a statue of a golden calf and hold up the calf and say, this is the one who brought us out of Egypt. The Bible says that's a blasphemy. What could be more offensive to God? Even when you made a golden statue and ignored God, blasphemed your God and did that, God still was merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, eager to forgive his people. They forsook him in the worst way imaginable, but he did not forsake them. Because God is faithful even when we are not. It sounds too, this sounds too good to be true. But this is grace. This is a covenant-keeping God. This is verse 8. You have kept your promise. And when they are in distress because of their sin, they need to look back and say, God is merciful. He has been merciful to us. I love this part about living in the, wandering in the wilderness, wilderness for 40 years. He fed them manna. He gave them water for 40 years. And this, this is something you don't think much about, or I don't think much about often, is this line that, their clothes did not wear out. Folks had the same clothes for 40 years. He's saying, I sustained you totally. God sustained them totally. For 40 years, they had the same clothes. Which sounds like some of the men in this church. You look in your closet and it's like walking into the 80s. Mine too. But it's like walking into the 80s. But I want to tell you men. You are not out of fashion and outdated. You've got a verse. God has sustained me and my clothes have not worn out for 40 years. Uh, There's your verse. Don't let them call you out of style. No, you have just been sustained for 40 years. Oh, ye of little taste and little style. It's amazing. Why are they rehearsing their history? Well, because this is going to be a prayer of confession at the end and a prayer of repentance. They're going to repent here in just a minute. When we sin, God's mercy doesn't lead us to more sin. They're not looking back and saying, man, we made a golden calf and we totally got away with it. 
God was like, oh, I'm going to forgive you. He's kind of winked at our sin. No big deal. So let's sin some more. No, when you really understand mercy, when you say God would do that for them, then you want to repent and serve the Lord. When you see grace for what it is, when you see the kindness and the mercy of God for what it is, you will love that God. Who wouldn't want to serve a God like that? Who knows our sins, who knows the the worst parts about us and still is eager to love us with, what does it say? Steadfast love is the biblical word. I heard somebody say, that's the greatest human desire, to be known, completely known, and yet completely loved in light of all of our failures. To be only known on the surface and loved is kind of meaningless, because you don't really know me. To be known deeply and to be rejected is crushing. But to be known deeply in all of our failures, all of our weaknesses, all of our ugliness, all of our humanity, all of our sin, to be known deeply and yet deeply loved, that is glorious. That's what God is like. If you're new to the Bible and your impression in the Old Testament is that God is just like, you know, waiting to judge his people and wipe them out and he doesn't like them and he's got unrealistic expectations. That is not the picture in the Old Testament. It is a picture of a God who is patient and merciful and sees all of their many failures and that loves them in spite of it because he is faithful to his end of the deal even when they aren't. Who wouldn't want to know that God? Who wouldn't want to worship a beautiful God like that? who loves us in our failures, who embraces us in our weaknesses. And so that's why the New Testament says this, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. When you really see your own failure and see the mercy of God, it will make you love him all the more. It will draw you to him. And that's exactly why they're rehearsing this, because they're repenting. Next, we read about the time they entered the promised land, beginning in verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. And they are remembering a glorious time in the history of their people. God promised to Abraham that he would give them a land, that he would give them a people, that he would give Abraham a people, and that ultimately he'd bless the nation of of the world through Abraham. And it's interesting why they highlight those very things. They highlight you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. That's the promise he gave Abraham. And uh, the descendants went in to possess the land. This is very deliberate. They're praying, God, Genesis 12, you promised Abraham a nation and descendants, and now we're recording. You did what you said. 
You kept your promises. You are faithful. And then they went into the land that they possessed, and it was like buying a model home where you don't have to set up and do anything. It's just all there for you. You get the furnishing and everything that comes with it. So they get possession of this land, defeat the enemies of God. They get uh, water. They get vineyards. They get orchards. They ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your goodness. There's so much so that everybody's just having a party, eating their fill after those years of manna and water. Now we're eating we're, we're sort of blimping out, eating so much. We're just, this is great. Look at all God has done for us. God is faithful. But they are not. That's what we find next in verse 26. What happened when God blessed them in the promised land? Verse 26. Nevertheless, we became fat, delighted themselves in your great goodness. Verse 25. Nevertheless. They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest... They did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of your enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times, many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. This takes us all the way up to Nehemiah's day. So they go into the land. They rebelled. What does God do? He sends prophets. Prophets bring God's word to call them back to God. What do they do? Receive the word of the Lord? No, murder. They murder, kill the prophets that come and bring them good news, ultimately, to turn back to God. They committed great blasphemies. So what does God do? Well, what he does to lovingly call them back to himself is he lets enemies come in and uh, mess with them, raid them is what happens. This is the period of the judges, the book of judges. So they come in and then he says, the people cried out. And then after they cried out in their suffering, it says that, uh, that he, he gave them verse 27 saviors with a small S. So he raised up saviors. Saviors were called judges in that time that rescued them. People like Samson, people like Deborah. What they did was they were leaders that caused uh, people to cause the people of God to stand up, fight back, and God gave them victory. So this is a pattern. We, I think I can identify with this. Can you? So they sin and get in trouble. And then they cry out, God, come help us. We'll never do it again. We promise this is the last time. And God rescues them amazingly. Wow. Isn't that good? And then they go and do the same thing again. God, please help me. I'll never do it again. This time I've really learned my lesson. He raises up another judge, delivers them. Boom. They do it again. 
they do it again. This is the pattern of how they live, and he faithfully continues to rescue them. With many, many times, it says, he comes to mercifully to them. It describes the language is so um, penetrating. There's this physical language. They stiffen their necks. They, they have stubborn shoulders. I don't know what stubborn shoulder is, but it's not pretty. They, they stiffen their necks. It's that one-year-old that you're trying to change a diaper, and they're stiffening their back. Oh, I will not be still. That's them before God. It's the stiff neck, the arched back, the stubborn shoulder. We're going to do what we want to do, God. Oh, now we're in trouble. Help us. We didn't mean it. This is how they live with God's merciful, gracious, kindness, because God is faithful when we are not. Verse 31 is just so powerful. It says, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them. What ultimately happens here, and he doesn't go through the period of the kings, but after the period of the kings, uh, prophets come to them and they continue to rebel. So ultimately in verse 30, they would not give ear. You gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Yet you did not end them. You did, you did not forsake them. So what happens at the end ultimately is he allows Assyria to come in and take the northern kingdom. He allows Babylon to come in and take the southern kingdom, which is Judah and uh, Jerusalem here. And then that happened 150 years ago from where we are, right, in Nehemiah. So he says, ultimately, you allowed us to go into exile. And now you have brought us back. And so here they are today, verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Listen, that's not religious language. He's gone through their whole history and shown this is our God. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the king of Assyria until this day. Listen to this verse, 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we've acted wickedly. We've been wicked, but you've been faithful. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you. Or turn from the wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield does to, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please and we are in great distress. This is really powerful. When the people think of how God has been good to them over the generations, how he's the God of second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and one thousandth and ten thousandth chances, they are broken. And they own their failures. When they look at the mercy of God and how he's treated them and their sin, they say, God, you have dealt faithfully. We've acted wickedly. Grasping this truth is really so key to, to having a repentant and a humble heart, to see the mercy and the faithfulness of God, to want to turn to him, to know, want to know him, to want to serve him. Our leaders have not kept your law, they say, and we are in distress. What they're saying is this distress, this is our own doing, God. Yet you've done so much for us. We've, you're so merciful to us. 
Some of us in the room today, we are suffering today. And if we were to draw back the link like Israel did, we would see our own actions have led to our suffering. I'm going to make clear, I'm not saying that all suffering is because of our personal sin directly. I'll make that very clear in a minute. But some of us are suffering today because of that. Some of us are entrapped in an enslaving form of sin that even feels addicting in nature. It could be pornography or it could be some means of uh, substance abuse or something that's spending, uh, gambling, something that controls our lives. And it all began back, if we trace it up, because we made decisions that were dishonoring to the Lord, that we were looking for a substitute God instead of him, and we went somewhere else, and we went there again, and we went there again, and became so in, 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 it became so deep into our lives that it actually took over, and some of it has physical compulsion now. There's a physical compulsion that controls us. But if we look back, we say, we're trapped in this enslaving sin. Well, it's because of my actions initially. Some of us are facing a financial nightmare. And if you trace it back, you go, it's because of some bad choices I made. I didn't save. I didn't give. I spent money I didn't have. I I put things on credit that I couldn't afford thinking someday maybe I'll cover it. And now my life is a disaster financially. And if you trace it back, you go, "It's, it's because of something I did. It's sin in my own life that I could point to. Maybe you're in a situation of family disharmony where your family is just broken up. Or another relationship that's just terrible. And you look back and you say, hey, it's not all my fault. It never is. There's always more than one person involved in a broken relationship. But you go, hey, I look back and I can see where I contributed. If I wouldn't have said this, if I wouldn't have done that, if I wouldn't have failed, if I wouldn't have failed in this area, maybe the relationship would be different. And you're sitting here with pain and suffering because of your actions. If that's the case, this passage should be tremendously encouraging to you. Because Israel comes back and when they are in distress because of their sin, they look back and say, you know what kind of God we serve? We serve a God that is merciful to sinners. That's the nature of God. We serve a God who once he makes a covenant with a people, he, he fulfills his promises. You can turn back to God and receive mercy and help and forgiveness today. And that's not taking advantage of God. If your heart is broken, that's for your sin and you're repentant. That is relating to the God who is God. That is how he relates. He welcomes sinners like this and and forgives and gives a fresh start. If you are suffering today because of your sin, this passage should bring you tremendous hope because of the pattern of mercy to go running to this God. Not running away from him, running to him. Some of us are suffering today, not because of our sin, but because someone sinned against us. So some of you are here today and you're suffering. Your greatest pain is because someone betrayed you. Someone betrayed you. Someone attacked you. Someone persecuted you. Someone neglected you. Someone treated you unjustly. And there's hope for you here as well. Think about this. Yes, Israel sinned, but they're also being sinned against. God's not pleased with the Persians who are overtaxing people unrighteously. They're also being sinned against. 
And because God is merciful to us, that mercy is not only to be all spent on us so that we get mercy from God, but that mercy from God is intended so that we can share that mercy. We can give that mercy that we receive. And so some of us, perhaps you've been sinned in some way and you feel trapped because of someone else's sin. I don't want to be overly simplistic here. But I do want to say that God wants you to touch his mercy so that you can extend the same forgiveness that you've received. That you're not, entra- that you're not trapped by someone else's actions, but you're freed because of God's actions in Christ for you. Some of us are here suffering today and you cannot tie it directly to your sin or someone else's sin. I mean, there's no reason that you can think of that you lost your job and haven't been able to find a new, find a new one. It's a mystery. It's not your sin. It's not someone else's sin. Some of you are here today and you're in pain because of a previous injury, a physical injury. And it won't go away. It just gets worse as you age. Or you are living with a debilitating illness and it's not tied to some specific sin you committed or some sin that someone committed against you. It's, well, there's no answer. And you suffer. Some of you suffer here today not because of your sin, because someone else sinned, but because you grieve the loss of a loved one. You lost a baby. You lost your parent. You lost your friend. Now, that's different than the text. Israel knew exactly why they were suffering. But even if we don't know, there is hope here in this passage. And the hope is that God is faithful. He's faithful to his people. He'll never give up on you. He'll never leave or forsake you. And even when it looks that way, even when it feels that way, there is an entire history of God and there is the word of God that demonstrates to us that he is faithful to us and we can come to him confident in what he did. You acted in what you did. You made a name for yourself even to this day. That's what they're hanging on. They're hanging on what you did then, you'll do again. And be faithful to us. This truth we must embrace. If we're to experience renewal in our lives. That God is faithful to us. Even when we are not. Even when we can't explain what's happened. Even when we can't explain what happened. God is faithful. And in light of this kindness and this mercy. We want to turn to him. Turn to his mercy. If you are suffering from your own sin today. Then you can turn and receive forgiveness. Receive forgiveness and power to change. If someone has sinned against you. If someone has sinned against you, ultimately, there's, there's often a process to this, but ultimately, you can be freed from that. You can turn to God and God can change your heart to a heart of mercy and forgiveness. A heart from unforgiveness to forgiveness, from bitterness to mercy. And trust and confidence that God will sort out and God will not let the guilty go unpunished. The person, the unbeliever that sinned against you and harmed you, God will deal with them in eternity. You can be confident of that. Those who suffer and have no idea, well, you can turn, why it is, you can turn to God and say, Lord, you are faithful. My life doesn't look like you're faithful from what I can see right now, but the truth of Scripture and the truth ultimately of my experience shows that you're faithful. If you're praying to God and saying, help me, God is faithful. That's what they're saying. Hey, we're here, God. You made a promise to Abraham and we're here. You made a promise to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus and I'm talking to you right now. That's evidence of God's faithfulness. That's evidence right there that you even care, that you're even talking to him. Even if you're expressing doubt and hurt, he's faithful. Or you wouldn't even know him and wouldn't even care. 
They close by making a covenant. Verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document or names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now, we'll look at that covenant. Uh, in the, uh, we'll look at that next time in, in chapter 10. But right now, they're making a commitment. They're saying, Lord, you have been faithful, and we are going to have a covenant renewal. We're going to renew our commitment. We're going to repent and renew our commitment to follow you. Here's the amazing thing. We have a covenant as well. And it's way better than their covenant. That's not my opinion. That's what the book of Hebrews says. We have a new and a better covenant. It's a far greater covenant. This is what in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes about Jesus at the last supper, last meal he had with his disciples. He broke bread and it said when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's a new covenant and it's represented not in the slaughter and sacrifice of an animal. It's represented in God himself becoming a man, Jesus Christ, and living a perfect life. Jesus never failed his father. Jesus always obeyed. Jesus never had a stiff neck or a stubborn shoulder. Jesus never said, I'll enjoy the blessings, but turn my back on the Father. Jesus obeyed perfectly, and the person now that believes in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, his perfect life is credited to us. And so God views us as keeping the covenant through Jesus. That is amazing. Secondly, we are covenant breakers. We have done exactly what the people of Israel. We don't read the story of Israel and go, oh, unbelievable. Those ungrateful sinners. We should be reading this and go, oh, that's me. Verse 10, that's me. Verse 12, that's me. Done that. Check. Yep. Live that way. Yes. We should see ourselves in Israel. When we read this chapter, we don't go, yeah, I'm like God. We go, yeah, I'm like Israel. We have failed, and yet our many sins were placed upon Jesus, who took our sins on the cross, was buried, and was raised to defeat the power of sin. He rose to the right hand, uh, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he poured out his Holy Spirit on us. So here's the new and better covenant. He's changed our heart. When we turn from our sin and believe in him, become a Christian, we're converted, that, that, that everything changes. We're joined to him, so now we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. We have a covenant that they can only imagine. We have a changed heart. God's Holy Spirit lives in us. God himself, he doesn't speak to us just from the outside. He lives in us by his spirit to comfort us, to secure us, to give us the testimony of adoption. Yes, you are my child. To change our hearts so that we can obey him more and more, little by little, so that we're being conformed to the image of Christ. He holds us. He will never let us go. He will never forsake us. He will hold us to the very end when he returns for us. He will call our remains out of the grave and give us a spiritual body and we will live forever in a new heavens and a new earth because of Christ in his new covenant. And he is relentless in his love. You cannot get away from him. You cannot run away from him ultimately. He will never let you go. He's in you. The spirit of God, we have a glorious Covenant, a better covenant than they. 
They looked to the Exodus and said, isn't it amazing that God freed us? You made a name for yourself. We look to a bloodied man on a cross and an empty grave and a risen Savior. And we say, you made a name for yourself, even as it is to this day. That empty grave matters for me today. That poured out spirit matters for me today. It's a story that reveals the truth of God, and we build our lives on that truth. And in our distress, we look back to creation to be sure. We look back to Abraham, we're his children, to be sure. We look back to the period of the judges, and we look back to the exile and God's faithfulness, but we look ultimately to Jesus at the right hand of the Father who is interceding for us this day. And we say, he has been faithful even when we have not. Tim, if you would come up. We're going to receive communion today. And when we receive the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, you know, it means, it, it means many things to us. His body broken so that we can be one. His blood shed so that our sins can be forgiven. That's all beautiful. But today when we receive it, I want us to think about all those things. But I also want us to think about this reality, that as we take the bread and we take the cup, they are tangible reminders. His living presence is with us in this to speak to us, I am faithful. You want to know if God is faithful? The starting place is not to look at your bank account or to look at the medical diagnosis or to look at your former friend and what they're saying about you behind your back. If you want to know the faithfulness of God, you look to broken bread. And you look to the cup of the shed blood of Jesus, and you say, He is with me. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.